welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. My name is Marcus Peter, the president of the Institute, your host for today. Joining me is our guest, Tony Powers, a friend, alumnus of Ave Maria University, and he works for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Most recently, Tony is a father of Luke Powers, a bouncing baby boy. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing great. How are you, Marcus? So uh, what's it like being a new father? Uh, tell us a little it's, bit about uh, Well, the the first word I would use to describe it is exhausting. Um, you know, they always tell you that you get a lot less sleep when you have a baby, and that's great, but there's really nothing you can do to physically prepare for it. You just kind of got to get used to getting three or four hours of sleep at night. And to be fair, after a eh, couple of weeks, it just becomes normal. So uh, we're we're about four months in now, and so it's not that bad anymore. Well, uh, I, I can't imagine what a blessing it must be. You, you must have a ton of stories to share. He, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's at the point now where he's probably going to start rolling over any any day in the mm -hmm. next week or so, um, which has turned into a point of frustration for him because he knows that the thing is right there. And he knows that he's so close to being able to get it, but he can't figure out how to do it yet. So, you know, you that's put it. him down on his back. and So uh, <laughs> that certainly sounds like a lot of fun. And, and honestly, we could go on for hours just talking about Luke. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, but we do have to dive into some more serious topics of discussion this morning. So uh, Tony has a lot of expertise when it comes to using scripture to defend the Catholic faith. And for that reason, Tony's our guest for this morning. And we'll be talking about the concepts of, I don't like using it this way, but the mechanics of salvation, whether we believe in penal substitution or vicarious atonement. So I'm going to start, Tony, by giving you the reins here in defending our terms. What do we mean by penal substitution? Who believes in it? And uh, what's the Catholic position on the matter? All right, so uh, when we're talking about, first off, when we're talking about the atonement, what we're looking at is what Jesus actually did on the cross, because every Christian will agree, Jesus died for us. The disagreement starts when we talk about what that actually means and what that looks like. Uh, so penal substitution is the idea that um, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God, in his justice, has to punish sin. And in order for us to be saved, there has to be someone to take that punishment on for us. And so that's what Jesus's role was. So the crucifixion and Jesus's passion is God pouring out the punishment due sin on Jesus instead of us. And so um, by that effect, we're spared the punishment due to sin because of Jesus. Uh, and this has a lot of connections to uh, especially Reformed theology, um, you can kind of see the mechanics of um, imputed grace uh, in there. Um, we can talk about this later, but it leads to very easily uh, a sort of double predestination and the idea of the elect and the reprobate. Um, and this is something Catholic theology absolutely rejects. And non-Catholic theology, there's a lot of debate about it. Um, it's 
it's really hotly contested among non-Catholics, but Catholics reject it altogether and instead opt for uh, what the early church taught and understood, uh, which is that Jesus offered himself as a free sacrifice on our behalf in order to, and this is where a little bit of debate in Catholic theology happens, the early church understood it as uh, a ransom for us because we were in bondage to sin and death. And so Jesus, as a free sacrifice of his own volition, offers himself as something of infinite value to pay that debt so that we're no longer in that bondage. Uh, and in the medieval church, uh, Anselm came out with uh, what became known as satisfaction theory, which is very similar um, it's not really the place to get into the technical nuances between the two of them. Um, but the idea that Jesus is of his own volition, making satisfaction for a debt that we owed uh, that had, that could only be made uh, by a sacrifice of infinite value. Right. I remember uh, preaching those exact, I mean, not those exact words, but I used to say it this way. I learned this from my pastors. Uh, Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because you owed a debt you couldn't pay. I, and I never understood what that meant in terms of its application today. I always just believed, yeah, no, I, I couldn't pay that, and Jesus did it. Uh, but but thank you. Thank you for that. So uh, what's the Catholic juxtaposition here? If penal substitution is what the Catholic Church doesn't teach, what does the Catholic Church teach? So you, you're talking about Anselm. Is there, is there a kind of phrase for the mechanics of salvation in the Catholic sphere? Uh, so, and you alluded to this earlier, uh, we call it vicarious atonement, where Christ is sacrificed, again, of his own free will on our behalf. And in baptism, uh, we are joined into the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, this is something that we see in uh, especially Hebrews and a little bit in Romans. We can talk about that later. But um, our salvation in the Catholic understanding comes from our joining into the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Uh, as opposed to simply not being bound by the punishment of sin because God is no longer angry. You know, there was this Protestant book. I don't remember the author. I don't even remember the title, but I'll, I'll never forget this line. Uh, it says this, God loathes you the way you would loathe a spider, except infinitely more so. And he takes all of that hatred towards you because of your sin and he shoves it on Christ. And, and I, again, I remember just believing all of that as a Protestant. But what you're telling me here about vicarious atonement is that I am taken up into Christ's sacrifice. Uh, and and that, that actually is a very hopeful image. So uh, let's dive right into scripture. Uh, we've got a couple of scripture verses that we'd like to talk about. Uh, what's the first one you want to take us to? Uh, so the first thing we're going to look at is Leviticus 16 um, and the idea of the scapegoat. Uh, now, to set this up, I do want to point out the verse that Protestants will go to to defend penal substitution. There is a single verse that they will go to every single time, and it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, he who knew not sin was made sin on our behalf so that we may... I don't remember the other half of it. Uh, we may be made the righteousness of God. That's the... Yes, that we may be made the righteousness of God. So, that's the single verse that starts all of this. And on the surface, it does seem to look like this idea of penal substitution, that Jesus was made sin on our behalf. So we're going to look at the scapegoat and see 
what the sin offering actually was so that we can have an understanding of what's going on here. So when we look at Leviticus 16, um, we have the ritual that's set out for the day we now know as Yom Kippur um, that the Jews celebrate as the Day of Atonement. Uh, and in that chapter, um, Aaron is given instructions on how the atonement sacrifice is supposed to work. So there's actually three animals involved. The first animal is a bull that Aaron is supposed to, or whoever the priest that's doing this, because this persists after Aaron's death. Uh, there is a bull that the priest is supposed to sacrifice for his sins. Then there are two goats. And one goat winds up being a lot more lucky than the other goat. Literally, they draw lots for which goat is going to get which fate. Uh, and one goat they take, and that goat is the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the other goat, whether it was the lucky goat or the unlucky goat, you can decide, uh, is the goat upon which the sins of the people are put. And then that goat is cast out of the camp, left to go wander in the wilderness to whatever fate may befall it. And what can happen here is if you're not careful and you're not paying attention to what exactly is happening, you look at the goat that has the sins of the people on it, you see it get cast out of the camp, and then the next thought is, and then God's going to do whatever he wants to do to that goat, and it's going to get the fate that those sins deserve. But that's not what's happening. And that's why we need to be careful, because it's, a, it's very easy for us to look at things that we think are connections between the Old and New Testament, but we need to be careful when we see those things, because sometimes we're drawing false conclusions. And so this is why it's so helpful for us that we have the early church fathers who were within a couple generations of the apostles that actually understood what was going on and can actually illuminate that for us. And so the goat that goes out of the camp, yes, that's where the word scapegoat comes from. It has the people's sins on it and it gets sent away. But really more of its effects, uh, it gets alluded to in, I think it's Psalm 49, as far as the East is from the West, so our sins are from you, so your sins are from you. Now, remember that Psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus. This is, yes, it's prophetic, but it's more of a description of this ritual of atonement, but it's not the scapegoat that atones for the sins. It's the goat that sacrificed on their behalf. And the goat that sacrificed doesn't have the sins of the people put on it. It's a sacrifice for them to God to make reparation for their sins. So in this sacrifice, God is not pouring out his wrath upon the goat. The goat isn't receiving the punishment due to the sins of the people. It's the people offering to God something of value in order to make up for the sins that they've committed. Uh, and we actually see this paralleled and even uh, expounded on a little bit in the life of David. There's an incident in 2 Samuel. David disobeys God, has a census, there's a plague, it's a whole big thing. Um, and at the end of the plague, in order to get it to end, uh, David goes to a man to buy his farm because God wants him to build an altar there. And he tells the man, hey, I want to buy your farm because God told me to build an altar here and make a sacrifice in order for the plague to end. And the man on hearing this says, hey, take it and I'll even give you a free cow. And David's response is, I can't make a sacrifice that doesn't have value to me. And it's that little thing that's really important 
and really helps understand what the purpose of sacrifice in the Old Testament is. It's not God punishing the sacrifice instead of you. It's the sacrifice isn't taking your place. It's you offering something of value to God as an act of reparation, even though, you know, as it, Hebrews says, the blood of animals isn't going to satisfy God. But it's an attempt that we can make because we're kind of finite, a little bit difficult for us to do infinite things. So that's what's going on in Leviticus. And that's the false parallel that happens that leads to the idea of penal substitution versus the true understanding of what's actually going on. So there the are a couple of things that are going on here. On the one, on the one hand, you've got this uh, almost physical representation of God casting the sins of the people as far as the east is from the west by sending out this go to Azazel. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to comment on, on the fact that the goat's going to Azazel at all, but... Uh, I, I'm going to try not to get too deep into the weeds so that we can keep this under three hours. <laughs> That's probably best left for another time. Uh, so so you've got that physical representation. Number one, you've got a sacrifice, if you will. It's not really a sacrifice. It's a casting out of the sins. Number two... The goat that's actually sacrificed is for the reparation of sin. It's it's against, uh, it, it's for the offense against justice. Okay, and and uh, so we're getting closer to Christ's work on the cross in that regard. Uh, so what's the next verse you'd like to take us through uh, from here, just to draw, draw this parallel? Uh, so I'm going to jump to Hebrews here, um, and really. Okay, you can use most of the book of Hebrews when you're looking at this. The entire concept of the letter to the Hebrews is uh, this is what Jesus did, and this is what it's paralleling in the Old Covenant, and this is us understanding how the Old Covenant is fulfilled in the New. The entire book is an explanation of what Jesus did, but we're going to attempt to narrow this down a little bit, so we're going to start a little bit earlier than uh, I think you had prepared. We're going to start for just a second in Hebrews 9. Um, because what, he, what the, author to the, the author of the letter says, uh, we're looking about Hebrews, mid-Hebrews and 9.15-ish. Again, entire letter. You can really pick anywhere, start reading, and find this stuff. Um, but... The let's see, do, do, do. oh, I had it right in front of me, and then I lost it. Where did it go? You just oh, here we go. That okay. happens. Yeah. So we're going to focus, especially starting at Hebrews nine twenty three. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, the author to the Hebrews is drawing a very, very direct parallel right there to the Day of Atonement, specifically 
when the high priest enters the holy place with yearly with blood not his own. That is the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. That's the one day the high priest is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and it's only after he's offered the sacrifice of that bull on the priest's behalf for the reparation of his sins so that he can then offer for the reparation of the sins of Israel. Uh, and Jesus, his sacrifice is such that he only has to suffer once. So we hear this phrase once for all, and actually it's going to come up in the next couple of verses. Um, but that's what we mean. Jesus' sacrifice happened one time for the salvation of all. It doesn't need to be repeated every year, like the sacrifice of Yom Kippur, which wasn't sufficient to actually make reparation for sins. Um, but Christ's sacrifice and the author to the Hebrews specifically refers to it as a sacrifice, which is important. Um, he sacrificed himself once for all to put away sin. And so we're going to jump forward a little bit into chapter 10. Um, <laughs> if I can find my place again, because I looked up. Uh, da, da, da. Ah, this is the verse I was alluding to a minute ago, uh, Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And we're going to move on. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. When he said above, you, had, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so he's continuing with this theme of drawing the parallel to Yom Kippur and the sacrifice of that goat on behalf of the sins of Israel. Uh, and this is uh, actually a reference to uh, Psalm 40, uh, where David or the psalmist says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Um, which, yes, is true of the Old Covenant, that, okay, the sacrifice of the goat on Yom Kippur happens because, well, the Israelites didn't exactly do a great job of listening to God in the desert, which in turn, it whole train of issues with Israel and God, and they're really bad at listening. It's, it's a whole thing. Um, but when Christ comes to do the will of God, he comes to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf so that, A, we may be saved from our sins, because those, again, have between us and God an infinite value for which we cannot make up, um, but also to restore us to our proper place uh, with God. And this is where we're getting a little bit more into the implications as opposed to the theory itself. Uh, but one of the implications of the idea of penal substitution is that Christ suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, but we're not changed. God's just not mad at us anymore. There's no... Um, in the words of Second Corinthians, there's no making righteousness of us. We continue to be exactly the same. Just God's not mad anymore, um, which has all kinds of other implications for other issues that 
it's a whole laundry list of things. Uh, and really, when you see how this all comes together in the understanding of Christ's sacrifice, you understand how one issue can be so key for so many different parts of theology uh, and why it's so important for us to understand what exactly it is that Christ is doing on the cross. And as the author to the Hebrews emphasizes over and over and over and over again, this is a sacrifice that Christ offered on our behalf as our high priest. Um, and earlier in the letter, and I think it's chapter three, uh, he says that Jesus, as our high priest, knew no sin, and so he did not have to make a sacrifice for himself. Because remember, the Aaron had to offer a bull for his for his sins before he could offer one a goat for the Israelites. Jesus gets to skip that step because he doesn't know sin. Uh, now, we're going to jump back to the Ro letter to the Romans. Um, we're going to look at chapter three first, uh, because there is a line in there that gets used to actually defend the idea that we aren't made righteous. Uh, Romans 3.10 says, as, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Uh, on the surface, we, we got a little bit of a problem here. Either we're made righteous through Christ's sacrifice or we're not. Thankfully, there is a way to look at this that makes sense of the two. Um, yeah. When you look at what Paul's actually saying in Romans chapter 3, he's describing the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and how the Jews have been holding themselves up as more righteous than the Gentiles because they have the law and they've mostly obeyed the law. And because of this, it should be reckoned to them as righteousness because that's what Abraham got for obeying God. So we're doing the same thing, so we should be righteous. And Paul literally says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. The whole point that he's making is, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, none of us are righteous before God on our own merits. Because all of us, as he says elsewhere, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Catholics would agree with that statement. We hold a special reservation for Mary, but again, issue for another time. Um, and we would agree with that statement with one slight caveat. Because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, because it's not him taking our place for the outpouring of God's wrath, but him offering satisfaction for the debt that we owe on our behalf. In our baptism, we're joined into Christ. So when we refer to the church as the body of Christ, yes, there's a certain mystical unity and Christ taking care of all of Christians and God, you know, loving the Christians and all that fun stuff. But there's a much more literal component to that. In our baptism, we are joined into the mystery of Christ's passion. Literally, we are baptized into the sacrifice Christ offered of his own body. And that's, again, starting to get into an issue for another time. But that's part of why baptism is such a big deal. Because without baptism, we haven't been joined into the sacrifice. And without baptism... Yes, God is God, and he can do things however he wishes. I will always save him that power because he's God. Um, but we have no guarantee of 
being a part of this ransom. Now, very quickly, I want to go back to that verse in Second Corinthians that I alluded to at the beginning. Um, he was made sin who knew not sin. Because we still have that issue of Jesus being made sin. What does that even mean? Because, I mean, the letter to the Hebrews is saying that he didn't, he didn't need to sacrifice a bull for a, to make our sacrifice, which means that he didn't have sin upon him. Um, but Paul's saying that he was made sin, even though he didn't know sin. What are we talking about here? It's actually a figure of speech from the old covenant era. When, when, um, when Paul says he was made sin, he's referring to a sin offering. Uh, it gets shorthanded into the idea of sin because, okay, on the one hand, yes, sin is an action that you commit. On the other hand, when you're talking about making an offering to God, you, it will occasionally get called making a, um, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but it's something to the effect of making a sin offering to God. Uh, and this sin, this phrase sin offering gets shorthanded to sin. And this is what Paul is referring to. Uh, so Christ is not made sin. Christ is made a sin offering who knew not sin. Uh, so as Catholics, we can say Christ died for our sins. We can say he died because of our sins. But what we cannot say is that he died through our sins which is an important nuance, even though it's very easy to get lost. Um, and on the whole, there's one other problem with penal substitution that I'd like to talk about. And it's a very big problem because the entire idea of penal substitution is that God's justice demands that sin be punished, which for the most part, we wouldn't disagree with. There's a little bit of nuance there. Again, topic for another time. Uh, there's just one problem. If God's justice is satisfied by Jesus on the cross, you have a major problem because that means that if anyone is being punished for their sins after Christ's passion, God is punishing the same thing twice, which is not an act of justice. So then you wind up in one of two camps, both of which Catholics have problems with. Uh, the first is that, well, when Jesus received God's punishment on the cross, that was sufficient for everyone to be saved, and so everyone will be in heaven. That's not exactly how it works. I mean, we have Jesus explicitly telling us that some people will not be in heaven. Makes a little bit difficult to square, because on the one hand, God is telling us not everyone's in heaven. On the other hand, if that's what happened, God can't punish those who have sinned because he already punished them. Uh, so seeing this dilemma, it leads to another effect uh, that, again, Catholics absolutely have to reject. The idea of what's called limited atonement, that Jesus only died for some of us. And for those of you who Jesus died for, congratulations, you're not going to be punished for your sin. For those of you he didn't die for, uh, too bad, so sad, it's going to be rough for you. But when we're looking at the letter to the Hebrews, he explicitly says Christ died once for all. 
So did he die for everyone? Did he not? And again, we have scripture telling us one thing, and then we have the implications of this theory telling us another thing. And as a general principle, when you run into an issue between your theological theory and the Bible, the Bible's usually the one that's right. Okay, so what's the solution to both these problems? I mean, you've already been uh, hammering it in for us, but uh, uh, it, it would appear to me that the solution to this would be the vicarious part in the vicarious atonement. Uh, exactly. Phrase. Yeah, uh, it, it, exactly. Um, Christ, of his own free will, because yes, he did have free will. That was a very lengthy debate. It took us a couple hundred years to sort out. There was a lot of bad blood. It was a whole big thing. Uh, but yes, Christ does have his own free will. And of his own free will, he offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf in order to repay the debt that we owed, that we could not repay. And so as your pastor had taught, uh, yes, Christ paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. The problem is in your interpretation of that statement. And what we have to understand is that this is a free sacrifice of Christ. This is not God pouring out his wrath, his wrath down on Jesus. This is Jesus himself offering the infinite value of himself as God and man up to God. A lot of Trinitarian confusion going on there because how does God offer himself as a sacrifice to himself? It's, Welcome right. to the world of theological mysteries. Uh, does God die, right? That's that's the question. Yeah. Did God die? Oh. Uh, uh. Well, yeah, that, that's uh, we've got a bunch of topics for other podcasts. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely be having you on to talk more about these. Uh, but, but for now, just as a, a kind of rounding conclusion, uh, I'd like to ask you to give us a pointer for Catholics who'd like to learn more about, again, I... I you know, I don't like using these words, the mechanics of salvation, but just organically, just how salvation works out. So first of all, for Catholics, but also for, I mean, I'm, I'm a Protestant convert. So, so th this, this is coming from my heart as well. Just as a Protestant, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I took penal substitution as the standard basis of what salvation was. So just a pointer for Catholics who want to learn more about salvation as a whole, and for Protestants to understand what they're being taught about salvation, what scripture really teaches about salvation. Uh, so the first piece of advice I would have is read the letter to the Hebrews. And then when you're done, read it again, and then read it again. Because that's, I mean, that's basically what the book is. It's, it is the manual of what our salvation actually is and how it actually comes about. Um, now, okay, great. But it's very difficult to understand. How am I supposed to understand what's actually going on? I mean, I don't know the Old Testament. I'm Catholic. I haven't bothered opening it since I was in like third grade. Um, and that's where finding good teachers comes into play. And being Catholic, we've got roughly 2,000 years worth of them. Uh, so Augustine is very famous for his uh, defense of the vicarious atonement. Um, I mentioned St. Anselm in his book, Why God Became Man, uh, describes the satisfaction theory, which is remarkably similar. Um, now, I do want to state, those are rather high level. Don't go diving into those without help. Um, and that's where places like this podcast, for example, uh, or 
the fine folks over at Catholic Answers, or uh, I'm, I think Scott Hahn has a book on this topic. Uh, can't remember what it would be called. I'm not sure. I read something recently, and I don't remember what it was called or who it was by, and it's kind of a problem. And Scott Hahn's kind of my default go-to Bible guy, so I just kind of figured it was him. Um, uh, but also, the Council of Trent, uh, Session 6, the entire thing they talked about was justification, which is an outgrowth of how the atonement works. They're both parts of uh, how salvation works. Um, so Session 6 of the Council of Trent is another resource for what exactly the church's teaching is. Uh, but also, you could turn to the Catechism. Because the Catechism is a wonderful resource that does a great job of synthesizing all of those very big, fancy theological things into something the average person can understand. Uh, so the Catechism, as it walks through the Creed, has an entire section on uh, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, died, and was buried. They've got an entire like 25 paragraphs following that section, which is a very good, very brief explanation of what's actually going on at that point. Can't remember the paragraph numbers off the top of my head, though. No, that's perfect. Uh, what about Protestant? I mean, as a Protestant, all I ever picked up was scripture. So I take it the same advice would be read Hebrews, read Hebrews, and read Hebrews. Uh, I ran or, into the problem of being my own magisterium. So, uh, yep. what, what? Uh, so for those of our uh, non-Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ, um, my biggest and single most recommendation would be continue reading scripture, but read the whole thing. Because there are certain implications of penal substitution, like, for example, uh, either limited atonement or uh, universal salvation that do not hold up in scripture. So the easiest advice I would offer to our non-Catholic brothers and sisters is uh, think about what this doctrine would require and how does scripture respond to that um outside of that i'm a cradle catholic i don't exactly have a lot of experience from the non-catholic side of things but marcus who yourself came over to our side from this perspective what brought you over i like how you describe it came over to our side uh what brought me over? It was a real pursuit of truth. I, uh, I was journeying with two pastors who couldn't agree on interpretations of very key verses. I remember the two things that really got me going were baptism, its necessity for salvation and the formula, and uh, communion, whether or not I could receive it at any point and what was its meaning. So th those were the two things that got me started. But uh, I, I, I would concur with you. Read scripture, read scripture, read scripture, and then... The day I encountered the church fathers, I was doomed. <laughs> You're not the first person I've heard say that. Yeah. I like telling people the Bible made me Catholic. Uh, you know, this was really uh, enlightening, Tony, and it was also very engaging. Uh, but I, I dare say I had a lot of fun doing this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, we'll, we have to have you on for future episodes. Uh, but for now, I think this is as good a point as any to close up the podcast for today. So uh, thank you all very much for listening and uh, joining us on today's episode. 
Uh, we hope to see you in joining us for future episodes. I'm Marcus Peter, president of the St. Peter Institute, and I've been talking with our guest, Tony Powers. He is a friend and alumnus of Ave Maria University, Go Jairines, and he works for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Until next time, God bless you and keep you, and uh, we'll see you on another episode. Thank you.